0: I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's good to see you back again. Tonight, we're going to continue with Jane Eyre. First, give yourself some time to put the day behind you. Imagine yourself rambling down a dusty path beset by moorlands it's late in the afternoon on a beautiful summer's day you have nowhere in particular to be you roll your shoulders forwards three times and back three times the sun feels warm on your skin Take a deep breath and notice how the air smells of wild flowers and grass. And when you exhale, you sigh, and the sound of your voice mingles with that of the chirping birds in the nearby bushes. Try to hold on to this visual as we continue. Last time, Mr. Rochester kept telling Jane of his exploits in Europe after abandoning his wife, Bertha, into the care of Grace Poole at Thornfield Hall. He told Jane of the affairs he had had with the women who he now knew couldn't hold a candle to her. He then spoke about how he had come to fall in love with her, watching her in secret and scheming to get closer to her without her being aware of anything. It pained Jane to hear this. She told him she still loved him. She had to leave Thornfield as soon as possible. She knew how easy it would be to allow herself to fall back into his trap and live as his mistress somewhere out of society. But she could not. Her moral compass pointed her away. She left Mr. Rochester's company that night in deep distress, packed her necessary items, and left early the next morning in silence. She was so weak from emotional exhaustion took every bit of energy to put one foot in front of the other. Soon, a horse and cart came alongside her and she asked for a lift to anywhere he was going. Tonight, Jane is continuing to try to get as far from Thornfield as possible. So just relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 28 Two days are past. It is a summer evening. The coachman has set me down at a place called Whitby. He could take me no farther for the sum I had given, and I was not possessed of another shilling in the world. The coach is a mile off by this time. I'm alone. At this moment, I discover that I forgot to take my parcel out of the pocket of the coach where I had placed it for safety. There it remains. There it must remain. And now I am absolutely destitute. Whitcross is no town, nor even a hamlet. Tis but a stone pillar set up where four roads meet. Whitewashed, I suppose, to be more obvious at a distance and in darkness. Four arms spring from its summit the nearest town to which these point is, according to the inscription, distant ten miles, the farthest above twenty. From the well-known names of these towns, I learn in what country I have lighted, a north midland shire, dusk with moorland, rigid with mountain, this I see. There are great moors behind and on each hand of me. There are waves of mountains far beyond that deep valley at my feet. The population here must be thin, and I see no passengers on these roads. They stretch out east, west, north, and south, white broad, lonely. They are all cut in the moor, and the heather grows deep and wild to their very verge. Yet a chance traveler might pass by, and I wish no eye to see me now. Strangers would wonder what I'm doing, lingering here at the signpost, evidently objectless and lost. I might be questioned. I could give no answer but what would sound incredible and excite suspicion. Not a tie holds me to human society at this moment. Not a charm or hope calls me where my fellow creatures are. None that saw me would have a kind thought or a good wish for me I have no relative but the universal mother nature I will seek her embrace and ask repose I stuck straight to the heath I held on to a hollow I saw deeply furrowing the brown moorside I waded knee deep in its dark growth I turned with its turnings, and finding a moss-blackened, granite crag in a hidden angle, I sat down under it. High banks of moor were about me. The crag protected my head. The sky was over that. Some time passed before I felt tranquil even here. I had a vague dread that wild cattle might be near or that some sportsman or poacher might discover me. If a gust of wind swept the waste, I looked up, fearing it was the rush of a bull. If a plover whistled, I imagined it a man. Finding my apprehensions unfounded, however, And calmed by the deep silence that reigned as evening declined at nightfall, I took confidence.
1: As yet,
0: I had not thought. I had only listened, watched, treaded. Now I regained the faculty of reflection. What was I to do? Where was I to go? Oh, intolerable questions! When I could do nothing and go nowhere, when a long way must yet be mastered by my weary, trembling limbs before I could reach human habitation, when cold charity must be entreated before I could get a lodging, reluctant sympathy importuned, almost certain repulse incurred Before my tale could be listened to, or one of my wants relieved, I touched the heath. It was dry, and yet warm with the heat of the summer day. I looked at the sky. It was pure. A kindly star twinkled just above the chasm ridge. The dew fell but with propitious softness, no breeze whispered. Nature seemed to me benign and good. I thought she loved me, outcast as I was, and I, who from man could anticipate only mistrust, rejection, insult, clung to her with filial fondness. Tonight, at least, I would be her guest as I was her child. My mother would lodge me without money and without price. I had one morsel of bread yet, the remnant of a roll I had bought in a town we passed through at noon with a stray penny, my last coin. I saw right bilberries gleaming here and there like jet beads in the heath. I gathered a handful and ate them with the bread. My hunger, sharp before, was, if not satisfied, appeased by this hermit's meal. I said my evening prayers at its conclusion and then chose my conch. Besides the crag, the heath was very deep. When I lay down, my feet were buried in it, rising high on each side. It left only a narrow space for the night air to invade. I folded my shawl double and spread it over me for a coverlet. A low, mossy swell was my pillow, thus lodged, I was not, at least at the commencement of the night, cold. My rest might have been blissful enough, only a sad heart broke it, it claimed of its gaping wounds, its inward bleeding, its riven cords. It trembled for Mr. Rochester and his doom, it bemoaned him, with bitter pity. It demanded him with ceaseless longing, and, impotent as a bird with both wings broken, it still quivered its shattered pinions in vain attempts to seek him. Worn out with this torture of thought, I rose to my knees. Night was come, and her planets were risen, A safe, still night, too serene for the companionship of fear. We know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us. And it is in the unclouded night sky where his words wheel their silent course, that we read clearest his infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. I had risen to my knees to pray for Mr. Rochester. Looking up, I, with tear-dimmed eyes, saw the mighty Milky Way. Remembering what it was, what countless systems there swept space like a soft trace of light, I felt the night and strength of God. Sure as I was of his efficiency to save what he had made, convinced I grew that neither earth should perish nor one of the souls it treasured. I turned my prayer, the thanksgiving. The source of life was also the saviour of spirits. Mr. Rochester was safe. He was God's, and by God he would be guarded. I again nestled to the embrace of the hill, and ere long in sleep forgot sorrow. But next day, want came to me, pale and bare. Long after the little birds had left their nests, long after bees had come in the sweet prime of day to gather the heath honey before the dew was dried, when the long morning shadows were curtailed and the sun filled earth and sky, I got up and looked round me. What a still, hot, perfect day. What a golden desert, this spreading moor. Everywhere sunshine. I wished I could live in it and on it. I saw a lizard run over the crag. I saw a bee busy among the sweet bilberries. I would fain at the moment have become bee or lizard, that I might have found fitting nutriment, permanent shelter here. But I was a human being, and had a human being's wants. I must not linger where there was nothing to supply them. I rose, I looked back at the bed I had left, hopeless of the future, I wished but for this, that my Maker had that night thought good to require my soul of me while I slept, and that this weary frame, absolved by death from further conflict with fate, had now but to decay quietly and mingle in peace with the soil of this wilderness Life, however, was yet in my possession with all its requirements and pains and responsibilities. The burden must be carried, the want provided for, the suffering endured, the responsibility fulfilled. I set out. Which cross regained, I followed a road which led from the sun now fervent and high. By no other circumstances had I will to decide my choice. I walked a long time, and when I thought I had nearly done enough and might conscientiously yield to the fatigue that almost overpowered me, might relax this forced action And, sitting down on a stone I saw near, submit resistlessly to the apathy that clogged my heart and limb, I heard a bell chime, a church bell. I turned in the direction of the sound, and there, amongst the romantic hills whose changes and aspects I had ceased to note an hour ago, I saw a hamlet and a spire. All the valley at my right hand was full of pasture fields and cornfields and wood, and a glittering stream ran zigzag through the varied shades of green, the mellowing grain the somber woodland, the clear and sunny lee. Recalled by the rumbling of wheels to the road before me, I saw a heavily laden wagon laboring up the hill, and not far beyond were two cows and their driver. Human life and human labor were near. I must struggle on, strive to live, and bend to toil like the rest. About two o'clock p.m., I entered the village. At the bottom of one of its streets, there was a little shop with some cakes of bread in the window. I coveted a cake of bread. With that refreshment, I could perhaps regain a degree of energy. Without it, it would be difficult to proceed. The wish to have some strength and some vigor returned to me as soon as I was amongst my fellow beings. I felt it would be degrading to faint with hunger on the causeway of a hamlet Had I nothing about me I could offer in exchange for one of those wrongs, I considered. I had a small silk handkerchief tied around my throat. I had my gloves. I could hardly tell how men and women in extremities of destitution proceeded, I did not know whether either of these articles would be accepted. Probably they would not, but I must try. I entered the shop. A woman was there. Seeing a respectably dressed person, a lady as she supposed, she came forward with civility. How could she serve me? I was seized with shame. My tongue would not utter the request I had proposed. I dared not offer her the half-worn gloves, the creased handkerchief. Besides, I felt it would be absurd. I only begged permission to sit down a moment as I was tired. Disappointed in the expectation of a customer, she coolly acceded me in my request. She pointed to a seed. I sank into it. I felt sorely urged to weep, but conscious how unreasonable such a manifestation would be, I restrained it. Soon I asked her if there were any dressmakers or plain workswomen in the village. Yes, two or three, she answered. Quite as many as there were employment for. I reflected. I was driven to the point now. I was brought face to face with necessity. I stood in the position of one without a resource, without a friend, without a coin. I must do something. What? I must apply somewhere. Where? Did she know of any place in the neighborhood where a servant was wanted? Nay, she couldn't say. What was the chief trade in this place? What did most of the people do? Some were farm laborers. A good deal worked at Mr. Oliver's needle factory and at the foundry. Did Mr. Oliver employ women? Nay. It was men's work. And what do the women do? I asked. "I know not," was the answer. "Some does one thing and some the other. Poor folk must get on as they can." She seemed to be tired of my questions, and indeed, what claim had I to importune her? A neighbour or two came in, my chair was evidently wanted, I took leave. I passed up the street, looking as I went at all the homes to the right hand and to the left, but I could discover no pretext, nor see an inducement to enter any. I rambled round the hamlet, going sometimes to a little distance and returning again For an hour or more. Much exhausted and suffering greatly now for want of food, I turned aside into a lane and sat down under the hedge. Ere many minutes had elapsed, I was again on my feet, however, and again searching something, a resource or at least an informant, A pretty little house stood at the top of the lane, with a garden before it, exquisitely neat and brilliantly blooming. I stopped at it. What business had I to approach the white door or touch the glittering knocker? In what way could it possibly be the interest of the inhabitants of that dwelling to serve me? Yet, I drew near and knocked. A mild-looking, cleanly attired young woman opened the door. In such a voice as might be expected from a hopeless heart and fainting frame, a voice wretchedly low and faltering, I asked if a servant was wanted here. No, said she. You do not keep a servant. Can you tell me where I could get employment of any kind? I continued. I am a stranger. Without acquaintance in this place, I want some work, no matter what. But it was not her business to think for me or to seek a place for me. Besides, in her eyes how doubtful must have appeared my character, position, tale. She shook her head. She was sorry she could give me no information, and the white door closed, quite gently and civilly. But it shut me out. If she had held it open a little longer, I believe I could have begged a piece of bread for I was now brought low. I could not bear to return to the sordid village, where, besides, no prospect of aid was visible. I should have longed rather to deviate to a wood I saw not far off, which appeared in its thick shade to offer inviting shelter. But I was so sick, so weak, so gnawed with nature's cravings. Instinct kept me roaming around abodes where there was a chance of food. Solitude would be no solitude, rest, no rest, while the vulture hunger thus sank, beak and talons in my side. I drew near houses, I left them, came back again, and again I wandered away, always repelled by the consciousness of having no claim to ask, no right to expect interest in my isolated lot. Meantime, the afternoon advanced, while I thus wandered about like a lost and starving dog, In crossing a field, I saw the church spire before me. I hastened towards it, near the churchyard, and in the middle of a garden stood a well-built, though small, house, which I had no doubt was the parsonage. I remembered that strangers who arrived at a place when they have no friends and who want employment sometimes apply to the clergyman for introduction and aid. It is the clergyman's function to help, at least with advice, those who wish to help themselves. I seem to have something like a right to seek counsel here. Renewing then my courage and gathering my feeble remains of strength, I pushed on I reached the house and knocked at the kitchen door. An old woman opened. I asked, was this the parsonage? Yes, she replied. Was the clergyman in? No. Would he be in soon? No, he was gone from home. To a distance? I asked. Not so far, appened three mile, she said. He had been called away by the sudden death of his father. He was at Marsh End now, and would very likely stay there a fortnight longer. Was there any lady of the house? Nay, there was naught but her, and she was the housekeeper. And of her, reader could not bear to ask the relief for want of which I was seeking. I could not yet beg. And again, I crawled away. Once more, I took off my handkerchief. Once more, I thought of the cakes of bread in the little shop. Oh, but for a crust. But for one mouthful to allay the pang of famine. Instinctively, I turned my face again to the village. I found the shop again, and I went in. And though others were there besides the woman, I ventured the request. Would she give me a roll for this handkerchief? She looked at me with evident suspicion. Nay, she never sold stuff in that way almost desperate, I asked for half a cake. She again refused. How could she tell where I had got the handkerchief? Would she take my gloves? No. What would she do with them? Reader, it is not pleasant to dwell on these details. Some say there is enjoyment in looking back to painful experience past. But at this day, I can scarcely bear to review the times to which I allude. The moral degradation, blended with the physical suffering, formed too distressing a recollection ever to be willingly dwelt on. I blamed none of those who repulsed me. I felt it was what was to be expected, what could not be helped. An ordinary beggar is frequently an object of suspicion. A well dressed beggar, inevitably so. To be sure, what I begged was employment, but whose business was it to provide me with employment? Not certainly that of persons who saw me then for the first time and who knew nothing about my character. And as to the woman who would not take my handkerchief in exchange for her bread, why she was right, if the offer appeared to her sinister or the exchange unprofitable. Let me condense now, I'm sick of the subject. A little before dark, I passed a farmhouse, at the open door of which the farmer was sitting eating his supper of bread and cheese. I stopped and said, Will you give me a piece of bread? For I am very hungry. He cast on me a glance of surprise, but without answering, he cut a thick slice from his loaf and gave it to me. I imagine he did not think I was a beggar, only an eccentric sort of lady who had taken a fancy to his brown loaf. As soon as I was out of sight of his house, I sat down and ate it. I could not hope to get a lodging under a roof and sought it in the wood I have before alluded to, but my night was wretched and my rest broken The ground was damp, the air cold. Besides, intruders passed near me more than once, and I had again and again to change my quarters. No sense of safety or tranquility befriended me. Towards morning, it rained. The whole of the following day was wet. Do not ask me, reader, to give a minute account of that day. As before, I sought work. As before, I was repulsed. As before, I starved. But once did food pass my lips. At the door of a cottage, I saw a little girl about to throw a mess of cold porridge into a pig trough. Will you give me that? I asked. She stared at me. Mother, she said, there is a woman who wants me to give her this porridge. Well, lass, replied a voice within. Give it to her if she's a beggar. The pig doesn't want it. The girl emptied the stiffened mold into my hand and I devoured it ravenously. As the wet twilight deepened, I stopped in a solitary bridle-path, which I had been pursuing an hour or more. My strength is quite failing me, I said in a soliloquy. I feel I cannot go much farther. Shall I be an outcast again this night, while the rain descends so must I lay my head on the cold, drenched ground. I fear I cannot do otherwise, for who will receive me? But it will be very dreadful with this feeling of hunger, faintness, chill, and this sense of desolation, this total prostration of hope. In all likelihood, though, I should die before morning. And why cannot I reconcile myself to the prospect of death? Why do I struggle to retain a valueless life? Because I know or believe Mr. Rochester is living. And then to die of want and cold is a fate to which nature cannot submit passively. Oh, Providence! Sustain me a little longer. Aid, direct me. My glazed eye wandered over the dim and misty landscape. I saw I had strayed far from the village. It was quite out of sight. The very cultivation surrounding it had disappeared. I had, by crossways and bypaths. Once more drawn near the tract of Moorland, and now only a few fields, almost as wild and unproductive as the heath from which they were scarcely reclaimed, lay between me and the dusky hill. Well, I would rather die yonder than in the street or on a frequented road, I reflected. And far better that crows and ravens, if any ravens there be in these regions, should pick my flesh from my bones, than that they should be prisoned in a workhouse coffin and moulder in a pauper's grave. To the hill then I turned. I reached it, remained now only to find a hollow where I could lie down, and feel at least hidden, if not secure. But all the surface of the waste looked level, showed no variation but of tint, green, where rush and moss overgrew the marshes, and black, where the dry soil bore only heat. Dark as it was getting, I could still see these changes but as mere alternations of light and shade, for colour had faded with the daylight. My eyes still roved over the sullen swell and along the moor edge, vanishing amidst the wildest scenery where at one dim point, far in among the marshes and the ridges, a light sprang up "'That is a willow o the wisp was my first thought, and I expected it would soon vanish. It burnt on, however, quite steadily, neither receding nor advancing. "'Tis then a bonfire just kindled?' I questioned. I watched to see whether it would spread, but no." as it did not diminish, so it did not enlarge. "'It may be a candle in a house,' I then conjectured. "'But if so, I can never reach it. "'It is much too far away. "'And were it within a yard of me, what would it avail? "'I should but knock at the door to have it shut in my face.' and I sank down where I stood and hid my face against the ground. I lay still a while. The night wind swept over the hill and over me and died, moaning in the distance. The rain fell fast, wetting me afresh to the skin. Could I but have stiffened to the still frost, the friendly numbness of death might have pelted on. I should not have felt it, but my yet living flesh shuddered in its chilling influence. I rose ere long. The light was yet there, shining dim but consistent through the rain. I tried to walk again, I dragged my exhausted limbs slowly towards it. It led me aslant over the hill, through a wide bog which would have been impossible in winter and was squishy and shaking even now in the height of summer. Here I fell twice, but as often I rose and rallied my faculties. This light was my forlorn hope. I must gain it. Having crossed the marsh, I saw a trace of white over the moor. I approached it. It was a road or a track. It led straight up to the light, which now beamed from a sort of knoll amidst a clump of trees, firs apparently, from what I could distinguish of the character of their forms and foliage through the gloom. My star vanished as I drew near. Some obstacle had intervened between me and it. I put out my hand to feel the dark mass before me. I discriminated the rough stones of a low wall. Above it, something like palisades, and within, a high and prickly hedge. I groped on. Again, a whitish object gleamed before me. It was a gate, a wicked. It moved on its hinges as I touched it. On each side stood a sable bush, holly or yew, Entering the gate and passing the shrubs, the silhouette of a house rose to view. Black, low, and rather long, but the guiding light shone nowhere. All was obscurity. Are the inmates retired to rest? I feared it must be so. In seeking the door, I turned an angle there shot out the friendly gleam again from the lozenged panes of a very small, latticed window within a foot of the ground made still smaller by the growth of ivy or some other creeping plant whose leaves clustered thick over the portion of the house wall in which it was set. The aperture was so screened and narrow that curtain or shutter had been deemed unnecessary, and when I stooped down and put aside the spray of foliage shooting over it, I could see all within. I could see clearly a room with a sanded floor, clean scoured, and a dresser of walnut, with pewter plates ranged in rows, reflecting the redness and radiance of a glowing peat fire. I could see a clog, a white deal table, some chairs, the candle whose ray had been my beacon burnt on the table, and by its light, an elderly woman, somewhat rough-looking, scrupulously clean, like all about her, was knitting a stocking. I noticed these objects, cursorily only. In them there was nothing extraordinary. A group of more interest appeared near the hearth, sitting still amidst the rosy peace and warmth sufficing it. Two Young, graceful women, ladies in every point, sat, one in a low rocking chair, the other on a lower stool. Both wore deep mourning of crepe and bombazine, which sombre garb singularly set off fair necks and faces. A large, old, pointer dog rested its massive head on the knee of one girl. In the lap of the other was a cushioned black cap. A strange place was this humble kitchen for such occupants. Who were they? They could not be the daughters of the elderly person at the table, for she looked like a rustic, and they were all delicacy and cultivation. I had nowhere seen such faces as theirs, and yet, as I gazed on them, I seemed intimate with every liniment. I cannot call them handsome, they were too pale and grave for the word. As they each bent over a book, they looked thoughtful, almost to severity stand between them supported a second candle and two great volumes to which they frequently referred, comparing them seemingly with the smaller books they held in their hands, like people consulting a dictionary to aid them in the task of translation. This scene was as silent as if all the figures had been shadows, and the fire-lit apartment a picture. So hushed was it, I could hear the cinders fall from the grate, the clock tick in its obscure corner, and I even fancied I could distinguish the click-click of the woman's knitting needles. When therein, a voice broke the strange stillness at last. It was audible enough to me. Listen, Diana, said one of the absorbed students. Franz and old Daniel are together in the nighttime, and Franz is telling a dream from which he has awakened in terror. Listen. And in a low voice, she read something of which not one word was intelligible to me, for it was in an unknown tongue, neither French nor Latin. Whether it were Greek or German, I could not tell. That is strong, she said when she had finished. I relish it. The other girl who had lifted her head to listen to her sister repeated, while she gazed at the fire, a line of what had been read. At a later day, I knew the language and the book. Therefore, I will here quote the line, though when I first heard it, it was only like a stroke on sounding brass to me, conveying no meaning. There appeared one who looked like the starry night. Good, good, she exclaimed while her dark and deep eyes sparkled. There you have a dim and mighty archangel fitly set before you. The line is worth a hundred pages of Fustian. I measured the thoughts in the shell of my wrath and the works with the weight of my ferocity. I like it. Both were again silent. Is there any country where they talk in that way? Asks the old woman, looking up from her knitting. Yes, Hannah. A far larger country than England, where they talk in no other way. Well, for sure, Case, I know not how they can understand one another. And if either of you went there, you could tell what they said, I guess. We could probably tell something of what they said, but not all. For we are not as clever as you think us, Hannah. We don't speak German we cannot read it without a dictionary to help us. And what good does it do you? We mean to teach it sometime, or at least the elements, as they say, and then we shall get more money than we do now. Very like. Give up studying. I've done enough for tonight. I think we have. At least I'm tired. Mary, are you? Mortally. After all, it's been tough working away at a language with no master but a lexicon. Tis, especially such a language as this crabbed but glorious Deutsch. I wonder when Sir John will come home. Surely he will not be long now. It is just ten, looking at a little gold watch she drew from her girdle rains fast Hannah wouldn't you have the goodness to look at the fire in the parlor the woman rose she opened a door through which I dimly saw a passage soon I had her stir a fire in an inner room she presently came back her uh, children said she fair troubles me to go into yonder room now he looks so lonesome with the chair empty and set back in a corner. She wiped her eyes with an apron. The two girls, grave before, looked sad now. But he's in a better place, continued Hannah. We shouldn't wish him here again. Then nobody'd need to have a quieter death, nor he had. You say he never mentioned us inquired one of the ladies. He hadn't time, Ben. He was gone in a minute, was your father? He had been a bit ailing like the day before, but naught to signify. When Mr. St. John asked if he would like either of you to be sent for, he fair laughed at him. He began again with a bit of heaviness in his head the next day. That is a fortnight since. He went to sleep and never wakened. You wore a most stark when your brother went into the chamber and found him. Ah, children, that's the last of the old stock. The aim Mr. John is like of different sort to them. It's gone, for all your mother were much in your way, and a as book learnt. She were the picture of you, Mary. Diana is more like your father. I thought them so similar, I could not tell where the old servant such I now concluded her to be, saw the difference. Both were fair-complexioned and slenderly made, both possessed faces full of distinction and intelligence. One, to be sure, had hair a shade darker than the other, and there was a difference in their style of wearing it. Mary's pale brown locks were parted and braided smooth, Diana's duskier tresses covered her neck with thick curls. The clock struck ten. You'll want your supper, I am sure," observed Hannah. "So will Mister St. John when he comes in." And she proceeded to prepare the meal. The ladies rose. They seemed about to withdraw to the parlour. Till this moment, I had been so intent on watching them, their appearance and conversation had excited in me so keen an interest, I had half forgotten my own wretched position. Now it recurred to me, more desolate, more desperate than ever it seemed from contrast, And how impossible did it appear to touch the inmates of this house with concern on my behalf, to make them believe in the truth of my wants and woes, to induce them to vouchsafe a rest for my wanderings, as I groped out the door and knocked at it hesitatingly. I felt that last idea to be a mere chimera. Hannah opened. What do you want? She inquired in a voice of surprise as she surveyed me by the light of the candle she held. May I speak to your mistresses? I said. You better tell me what you have to say to them. Where do you come from? I am a stranger. What is your business here at this hour? I want a night's shelter in an outhouse or anywhere, a morsel of bread to eat. Distrust, the very feeling I dreaded, appeared in Hannah's face. I'll give you a piece of bread, she said after a pause. But we can't take in a vagrant to lodge isn't likely. Do you let me speak to your mistresses, I asked. No, not I. What can they do for you? You should not be roving about now. Looks very ill. But where shall I go if you drive me away? What shall I do? Oh, I'll warrant you know where to go and what to do. Mind you don't do wrong, that's all. Here's a penny. Now go. A penny cannot feed me, but I have no strength to go farther. Don't shut the door. Don't, for God's sake. I am lost. The rain is driving in. Tell the young ladies. Let me see them. Indeed, I will not. You are not what you ought to be, or you wouldn't make such a noise. Move off. But I must die if I'm turned away. Not you. I'm feared you will have some ill plans gate that bring you about folks' houses this time at night. If you have any followers, housebreakers or such like anywhere near, you may tell them we are not by ourselves in the house. We have a gentleman and dogs and guns. Here, the honest but inflexible servant clapped the door to and bolted it within.